Hello and welcome to the Vinyl Sideways podcast, diving deep into a discography one side at a time. I'm Al and with me is Jerry. For our first series of episodes, we're going through the catalog of the legendary English progressive rock band Pink Floyd. For this episode, we'll be discussing the follow-up to their big breakthrough, Wish You Were Here. I like this album, Jerry. (laughs) I like this album a lot. In fact, I like it a lot more upon listening to it recently, as I did uh, preparing for this program. Uh, than I did when I first heard it or times that I've heard it since then, front to back, which, uh, to be honest, I have not listened to a lot over the years. I'd heard certainly all the cuts on the album uh, numerous times played unto themselves, just, you know, single play of the cuts themselves. But this is really... I believe over the past couple of days, it was really the only time or times that I had listened to the album front to back uh, for decades, really not since I was in college where a roommate of mine had a copy of the album and we would listen to it. And I remember hearing it front to back at that point in time. Uh, When the album came out, I certainly didn't hear it front to back because I didn't own a copy or didn't know anybody who did. And the radio would only play you know, certain cuts from it. And listening to it again, uh, this time around, from the front to the very end, uh, you know, it's becoming a tired phrase, but what a great album. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, this is probably the Pink Floyd album I've listened to the most. Um, I think, um, you know, certainly Dark Side of the Moon has had its fair share of plays, um, however, that album has just achieved such an iconic status that um, I and I've and I've heard it so much in, in when I initially came across it that um, I, I hate to use the the phrase "played out" because I, I there's still so much within the Dark Side of the Moon album that I enjoy and I I get something from listening to it even now. Um, I there's just that sort of that nagging feeling in my head like you know I, I've got the whole thing in my head like I know every sort of shift and nuance of that album and that's not to say that I'm not as familiar with Wish You Were Here in fact I probably know all the shifts in the the album even better than Dark Side of the Moon but um, I, I feel like it's the it's the the Pink Floyd album that is it, it might be their best album front to back um, I think it's their strongest collection of music and lyrics, um, front to back. Uh, and I, th- I think it's the, the album for me that um, I go to as a, okay, Dark Side of the Moon is your gateway drug to get into the band. Wish You Were Here is when you sort of elevate your appreciation of, of the band as musicians and songwriters and lyricists. Um, it's, it's got almost the complete package. It's got um, lyrics that you listen to for the hundredth time and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, there's, you know, there's, a, there's a real deep emotion. Um, there's a sadness to it. There's, a, um, there's humor in it. There's lines of poetry within it that even for me, someone who doesn't really appreciate poetry on its own, I 
there are lines on this album that that stick with you every time you hear them. Um, my story with this album, this was the, and this is a story I've told briefly in other episodes of our of our podcast here. Um, this is the album that after I brought home Dark Side of the Moon and started talking to my dad um, about the band and how I was listening to this album and gosh, isn't it great? And weren't you around for this band? And he's like, yeah, you should listen to Wish You Were Here. And this was an album that I was not even remotely aware of. Um, all of the hype around Pink Floyd in the early to mid nineties was Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall. So I'd never even heard of the album. And so I guess he had stopped on his way home from work one day and, and bought a copy from, I don't know, Circuit City or Best Buy or something. and he. Uh, he and I played it um, in the living room, and I was just sort of in awe of what I was hearing. I think the, the I can remember playing it for friends of mine. So it kind of was, hey, you need to hear this. Um, and in the worst possible conditions, we would listen to it in the car driving, <laughs> driving around. It's not really a good driving around album, um, but you know that's what we did. And uh, I remember commenting to my friends like hey the first song man they don't start singing until like eight minutes into it and i thought that was just like the wildest thing that um that the first song was you know so long 16 minute opener and they don't start singing until halfway through um but you know since then since those initial listens it's it's the album i've, I've listened to the most frequently um i i, I use it um as a uh, as a test, uh, if if I have a, a new car or a new sound system or speakers or whatever, it's a good album to put on to test your equipment, um, especially sort of the opening uh, the opening explosion of sound, which we'll talk to when we we we'll talk about when we get to our track by track. Um, but I love this album. Um, I think it's it's certainly a top five, probably a top three, depending on the day. It might be my my top favorite Pink Floyd album. The, my experience with this album, uh, different from yours because it's a couple of decades before, but this was, for me, the first Pink Floyd album that I became aware of after Pink Floyd was pretty much, uh, had become album rock giants. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon had made its huge splash, and Pink Floyd was understood amongst my peer group as this amazing, incredible band. And there's a lot to be said for that. They were very ma amazing and inc incredible and recognized as such. Uh, it was the, the Pink Floyd was the go-to. These guys are amazing. You got to see them in concert, and the tours have come through town, which I was too young to go see. Uh, and my older peers would show up at school the next day wearing the concert T-shirts and other, you know, concert merchandise. And But as far as the album itself is concerned, this was the first album where you would be getting multiple tracks, uh, making it into the album rock radio uh, broadcasts. And um, many of them, every song would be played on album rock radio, though many of them, particularly Shine On Your Crazy Dime in the first cut, which we will start talking about in depth shortly, uh, were in 
deftly truncated edited form because it didn't fit, even though it was album rock, it didn't fit the format of, you know, we're going to play, if we're going to go at a stretch, maybe a four-minute song, but, you know, we're going to try and keep it shorter than that because we have commercials to run and, you know, air checks to make. But every cut on this album made it to radio, uh, certainly some with a lot more frequency than others, but this was the first one where uh, it came across on the radio and, oh, yeah, this is, this is uh, I wish you were here. Not so much maybe the song, although that song got its broadcast, but in reference to the album. Uh, also to that was the album cover itself was a, I'm not going to say game changer or anything like that, but it was a very, very memorable album cover. And... You know, whereas Dark Side of the Moon had the pyramid and the, you know, the triangle and the rainbow and all that type of stuff going on, this one had, you know, a couple of guys shaking hands and one of them's on fire and, you know, good God, what does that mean? And uh, for a, you know, a young teenage brain, it was definitely very interesting and, uh, you know, it, it was something that was memorable in that respect. But more than anything, the biggest effect this album had on me when it came out was uh, one my, how my older friends, how they raved about it, and also the fact that I was hearing it on the radio with all this other, with what else was on the radio at the time. Album Rock Radio was playing the hell out of this album, though, as mentioned a moment ago, they were in... Uh, uh, most of the songs were added in, in some fashion. Yeah, I think I think even now, um, I think I've heard every song from this album on what is now classic rock radio. But um, even even tracks like "Welcome to the Machine," which is not uh, necessarily a jump out single, but I've heard I've heard that song multiple times um, even now on on the radio and. Uh, I get what you're saying about the the edited versions of these songs, and I think this is a, a trap that Pink Floyd found themselves in. I don't know necessarily if it was um, something they thought much about. I think as musicians, they're more about serving the song. And gosh, if it's a if it's a 20 minute song, then it's a 20 minute song, you know. But um, a lot of their their album tracks are not suited for radio. Um, and so when Dark Side of the Moon hits and you've got songs like Money and Us and Them and Time and Brain Damage becoming radio staples, then you're sort of you're, you're, you're thinking of them as, as a sort of a different band. They're not the same group they were back in the Saucer Full of Secrets, uh, even the metal days, um, where you're, you're going to buy that album and it's, it's chock full of surprises. Um, I think a lot of the people buying Wish You Were Here, uh, at the time anyway, were buying it on the strength of songs that they were already hearing on the radio. And so um, that that is addressed on the album later on. There's, there's, uh, there's critiques of the music industry and the economics and the business side of uh, the, mu- uh, the music that they were creating and what the band was becoming as a, as, as a product. Um, but it didn't. It didn't hurt them in sales. It didn't hurt them in um, in wealth and fame and notoriety. And um, with all the baggage that comes with that, they were allowed uh, by the record label to d- 
do almost whatever they wanted. Um, money was no object. Send Pink Floyd into the studio and see what they come up with, and it's going to be a smash. This is um, this is the album where, as a band, they start to to find that being all in the same room together, playing the song together, was not going to be how they would record for the foreseeable future. That those days were starting to become in the rearview mirror. Do you um, do you have much to say about? the recording process well what i found surprising i have a little bit to say and i was surprised in when i was doing my homework because uh, i knew little about this album except that i'd heard the songs and i'd heard them on the radio and was certainly familiar with the songs themselves but knew pretty much nothing about what was going on with the band as a band or what was going on with the individuals in the band while they were making this album. It just, you know, it was at the time, of course, when it came out, uh, we didn't have the internet where we could research these things. And, you know, as a very young teenager at the time, I probably would not have been interested. uh, Or maybe I would have been very interested, who knows. But, which is all to say I had no clue about what was going on with the band or with the individuals when they were cutting it together. And I was very surprised that, uh, according to what I was able to read, that it was, I mean, it wasn't a terrible time for the band as would become infamously known as the years went on, but it was a very disjointed. There was a lot of stuff going on uh, in their personal lives, and there was... Uh, they were kind of at loose ends, at least that's my understanding, and it really wasn't a grand scheme to cobble something together. It was really more of a let's get on with it work ethic. Well, you know, we've done with a tour and we need to get another album out, so let's get to work and see what we can do. And there was a lot of kind of an exhausted malaise going on with the band in terms of they had achieved, you know, fame and fortune at that point by with Dark Side of the Moon, but they still had that work ethic to go forwards because they were in the band and that's what they did for a living. And they were kind of, I, unmo- unmotivated is the wrong word to use, but the motivation, they weren't as hungry at the time to put out a... You know, put out a product, I guess you could say. They weren't as hungry, but all that said, you couldn't tell it by listening to the album itself. What they did put out is an impressive piece of music or pieces of music, and uh, it was just surprising to find out that uh, the sessions were kind of disjointed and they were separated by a tour, and there was a lot of just trying to get something down and to get it together and to get it to a point to where they liked it. But it wasn't like it was, this is going to be an incredible follow-up to Dark Side of the Moon. There was that kind of null space where they weren't sure how they were going to proceed, so they just kind of continued forwards, and it started to fall out to where they were doing it in pieces and not everybody would be in the 
in the studio at the same time, and some people will be working on stuff, uh, some stuff here and some stuff there, and all of that had to do with this kind of malaise, I guess, having achieved what they achieved with Dogs Night of the Moon, and what was going on in personal lives. A couple of them had marriage issues going on and stuff that I don't think is worthwhile to get into. But I was, as complete of an album as this is, it was surprising to me to find out that it was not a, I'm not going to say a terrible time in the studio, but it certainly wasn't the camaraderie, we're all in this together, and, you know, tally-ho chaps were fighting the good fight. It was just kind of a, looking at it in that perspective, it seemed to be kind of cobbled together, and, well, here, let's do this, and hope it flies and it's still a great album despite all that i found that very surprising yeah it's, it's curious to to read quotes from the band talking about this album and and hearing those kinds of thoughts and you know the, it, it's true you know you you're you're initially you're you're in you're in the band to achieve a couple of things there's the artistic expression and then there's the sort of the fame and recognition that goes along with that. And once you achieve that, I think there's you know, I think you're you're left with the question of well we we did the thing that we set out for what's next or what else is out there or um, you know David Gilmore talks about um, sort of the empty feeling of like you go into the studio and it's like you're going to work or you're going to do something you've already done. Like, do we want to reach the top of the mountain? Well, we already did that, so we're doing it again. Um, and I think thankfully for, for us as an audience, um, they did have a strong collection of, of song ideas to, to present um, and would continue um, for many years to have strong musical ideas to present. Um, at the how unfortunately at the expense of the band really being a band like the days of getting into the van and going on a quick tour of the uh, the English countryside and hitting the college towns um, and those days are over you're you're a big major act now you're you're a marketable product you have people at the record label to answer to and so um, all of those sort of feelings are reflected in different ways on this particular album. So I think it's sort of the, a credit to the genius of the band, credit to the, the songwriting, that they were able to take those experiences, like that experience of being confused and having the sort of empty, what what is our goal, and finding a way to make a statement that is able to connect with an audience. Because... When you get into, I think I've mentioned this before in the show as well, but once you get into writing songs about being a rock star, you, I think you run the risk of alienating your, your crowd. Like, I think it was the, uh, was it the Rick Wright songs about groupies, which he's had a couple you know, before this. It was like, those songs didn't really connect with me because that's, that's not a lifestyle that I've taken part in, and I don't know what that's like waking up next to groupies every day. But good for you, Rick, for singing about it. This is a, a, a way, you know, they were able to take those feelings and make them more universal, make them more open to individual interpretations. Um, they're writing about very specific things and very specific feelings that they're having. However, um, the way that they've done it, uh, I, I think, is a, is a reason why the album is so highly 
well-praised and well-regarded and continues to have an audience decades later is it, it, it has those, those feelings, those universal interpretations within the lyrics for you to, uh, as an audience, listen to and apply it to your own life. What I find notable is not so much as the, the audience responds to it, although that's important, but given the amount of disconnection or maybe disenchantment or, uh, you know, why are we going down this road again? Uh, given that uh, undertone in the recording, as long as it took, that when the album was completed, uh, the band as a whole really likes the album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was a it was a Rick Wright favorite, so they were very happy with what they were able to create. Uh, and the audience, of course, I mean, this was a very critically acclaimed album, and of course, it did well commercially too. Uh, but the band members consider it a favorite. It generally, in interviews I was came across, that uh, every one of them says they like the album a lot and they thought it was a success. Naturally, it was, I mean, it was a success, obviously. But uh, there is a tendency to where, you know, if it turns out to be a struggle, you know, what comes of it, good or bad, is kind of looked upon as really not that great it can kind of prejudice you as a band member i'm guessing it could prejudice prejudice you against the the actual creation itself or the you know the product itself uh given the circumstances of the recording uh but the band likes the album you know every one of them have said they like it and they're you know certainly some of them think it's some of their rick wright thought it was it's his favorite really his favorite of Pink Floyd's uh, output, and uh, there's a lot to like there, certainly. So I just thought that was very interesting in that they did have, I'm not going to say a difficult time, but kind of a, it seemed like making this album was kind of a slog for them, uh, if I may use that verb. You know, it was kind of a labor and kind of a dragging yourself, you know, kind of metaphorically speaking, dragging yourself back into the, the salt mines. And be that as it may, they still managed to create a, uh, an absolute gem of a record album. And, you know, to, to that end, I, I think every song on the album became a part of Pink Floyd tours, Roger Waters tours, David Gilmore tours. Um, they continue to play these songs to this day, these are, you know, these are the songs that continue to, to pop up in set lists, and I think audiences expect to hear, at the very least, "Wish You Were Here," the song, or "Shine On You Crazy Diamond," um, in an, in a concert setting. They're they're concert staples, and um, you really can't imagine going to a Pink Floyd show and not hearing something from this album. It would be it would be out of place if. Um, if the whole set list sort of avoided such a such a landmark recording, um, would it, you, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add that uh, David Gilmour, for that matter, as well. You know, he uses uh, multiple songs from this album uh, on his live shows. Yeah, um, and, and to that end, we can we can go into talking about the the first track, "Shine On You Crazy Diamond." 
we talked last time about the song Brain Damage being, um, you know, uh, of a number of songs that critics and audiences like to point at um, a lot of Pink Floyd songs about having some connection to Sid Barrett. And I don't always feel that that's warranted. I feel like sometimes um, it's an easy association to make. I mean, it's it's an obvious association to make. But I, I think if you're if you're in the band and you're writing these songs, I don't think every time you sit down to write a song, you're thinking about Sid. I'm 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 certain he comes up in thoughts and conversations throughout um, throughout their history. But I, I don't I don't I don't think it's a, a service to Roger or David or whoever's writing the songs that they're all about Sid Barrett. Um, Shine on you, crazy diamond is, however, a very direct song about Sid. Um, the Sid is the inspiration for the song. He's singing about Sid. He's singing about how, you know, these feelings of, in my mind, it's about, it's about regret. It's about, um, remorse about maybe the way Sid left their group. Maybe the fact that they are now the most successful band in the world, uh, or at least one of the most successful bands in the world, that they know that they don't have their their founding member, their initial songwriter and leader of their group is not with them anymore. So um, it, it's a theme that crops up a couple times on this album, but here it's the most direct association to Sid Barrett, I think, in the entire catalog. Um, and it's it's an extended piece that musically even you know the lyrics are certainly direct but even musically it feels like everyone in the band is playing something about Sid the keyboard synthesizer pieces feel like Rick is playing about Sid David's uh his guitar his little four note I think he calls it Sid's theme uh the four note ringing uh riff that he plays uh throughout the piece is he's he's playing a sort of a a lament to Sid and his absence so everything comes together in the song and it's 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 the most direct uh comment that the band has made at least in song about Sid Barrett to this point no what I wanted to say about that and and you're right I agree with you entirely I think that's very astute I kind of see that as it's almost as if it's Roger Water lancing the boil, if I may be so uh, <laughs> descriptive, mm. of the, the angst and who knows how many years of people going, hey man, where's Sid? You know, how come Sid isn't with the band or whatever? I'm sure they got that with interviews and, uh, you know, fans and, you know, you know, taxi drivers, who knows what. But it was maybe not so much as written and put on the album to lance that boil, but it was the Pink Floyd or the Roger Waters statement on Sid Barrett. Yeah, that, kind, of, uh, kind of a once and for all, you, you've asked for my comment, here it is. Yeah, but I don't think it was so much as put out there to answer all those questions but really just to make a statement on Sid Barrett and the in, in the context of their rise to fame and fortune and uh, in the context of that there is a piece that went missing 
and for good or for bad, arguably it was definitely towards the good, uh, that that piece is now gone. And that piece is not, is not just missing, it's gone, gone. It's, uh, it's as gone as can be without actually that person being dead and gone. And it was a, it was a, you know, that piece has been removed and it left a hole. Uh, but the hole that it left gave space for the band to expand into other areas that it might not have gone into otherwise. And I doubt Roger Waters was specifically writing to expand upon, well, Sid was gone, and you know, with Sid's absence, we became a success. But the you mentioned uh, the melancholy nature uh, of it. This is uh, short of cuts that are on the wall. This is the saddest, most melancholy, but powerful in that melancholy sense. Uh, Pink Floyd track that I can think of. It's a. It's almost a, uh, a lament, and it's very well expressed by those chords, uh, not chords, but those notes that uh, Gilmore plays that are singular, and when any Pink Floyd fan hears those notes, they know exactly where the song, they know what song is about to be played. And uh, it's, they've become iconic in that respect. Um, you hear those notes, and uh, if you be, are familiar with the song and the history of the song itself, and specifically the person who the song is about, you hear those notes, and you know this is the song about Sid Barrett. This is the song about Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd, and uh, there is that sadness and melancholy that is so. Uh, counter to the whole rock and roll ethic. Not so much as prog rock, which definitely touches on those themes more often than not, but it's a, you know, this isn't something that you would think would make it on classic rock or um, album rock radio, but it's a standout song in that respect, and it played on the radio. You know, whether people knew about Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd or not, it played on the radio t to positive results. You know, the, by and large, well, actually, I've never heard anyone say anything bad about this song or this album, for that matter. Why would you but, want to hang uh, around anybody who would say something bad about right. this song? Well, there's that as well. But <laughs> you know, it's, there's, there's the matter of... You know, you can, maybe it's comparing apples and oranges, but it's not a particularly upbeat song. It's not particularly fast. It's uh, not radio-friendly at all. No, it, that's pretty much what I'm getting to. Uh, certainly not in the context of 1975 or anything like that, where uh, pop rock, which still had its uh, power within album rock radio, the pop song still ruled, and you wanted something upbeat and something you could conceivably dance to, and then maybe you're, if you were a guy listening to it, and you probably were something that you could, you know, share with your girlfriend, uh, for a lack of a better way to put it. Would you? Would and, you quickly? Would you like to know the 
top uh, single of 1975, according to Billboard magazine? You know, I would like to know that because I started to do some research looking at what was on top at the time and then decided, nah, I'm really not that into it to get all those details. So uh, what did you find? Well, just to give some context of what was being played on the radio and how sort of unique it would be to hear Pink Floyd, much less these Pink Floyd songs on the radio at the time, uh, top song for the year 1975 was Captain and Tennille, Love Will Keep Us Together. Right, there you go. <laughs> uh, you know, and then you, after that you got Rhinestone Cowboy, Philadelphia Freedom, uh, Before the Next Teardrop Falls, and My Eyes Adored You. So very much a, um, a departure from, from pop radio of, of, the, of, the, of the time. And, uh, well, I'll, I'll add that with Philadelphia Freedom by Elton John. Uh, that got a lot of radio play, and it was being played on the album rock stations. Mm-hmm. Not that there was really a big difference between the album rock and the pop rock stations of the time. What it came down to was the album rock stations would also play Black Sabbath or The Who uh, or The Rolling Stones, whereas the pop rock, if they played... Well, they wouldn't be playing Black Sabbath, but you know, as far as the Who was concerned, they were playing "Won't Get Fooled Again" and uh, you know, songs like "Philadelphia Freedom," more upbeat, more peppy, poppy, uh, more upbeat. And this is—it's not a dirge, but it is a lament. It's not Shut something you're going to roller again. skate to. Yeah, probably unless it was real late, and you know. <laughs> You know, we're gonna. You've been a. You've been a bunch of great skaters here at the rink. Yeah. Now we're gonna play this so you can get out. This is. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but this was definitely not a. Uh, you know, thinking of young teenagers and what the, what they like to listen to broadly. You know, I'm kind of broad brushing here. Uh, this isn't what programmers were really looking for, but they were programming it, at least an edited version of Shine On You Crazy Diamond, because it did strike chords to the listener, uh, and more, in, more, than, more than anything, it was the musicality of it, and you know, whether that was Dave's guitar, which is very bluesy on this, uh, uh, in sections, on this uh, song itself, on this cut, uh, or you know, the, the nature of the lyrics themselves, uh, which, you know, speaking as a young teenager when this al- when this album came out, I had never heard of Sid Barrett. I didn't know who Sid Barrett was. Uh, I obviously knew nothing about the, you know, sad story that ultimately culminated, musically speaking, in this song itself. Totally unaware of that, and I would imagine... 95% of radio listeners were likewise completely clueless about that. So the song itself, on its own merits, never mind its history or its baggage, the song itself on its own merits, it did it did well. I mean, it struck chords on people, and that was the musicality to it, and it was the, you know, it was a listenable song in that respect. Just an outlier, though. Yeah, it certainly wasn't Philadelphia Freedom. <laughs> right, and and El, I guess Elton kind of had a foot in each sort of door there. The 
the the pop rock and the the more album oriented stuff but certainly in the mid 70s in the mid 70s yes, absolutely yeah absolutely right um you know i i was listening to you talk about you know how you initially when you when you heard the song you didn't ha- you didn't have the sid barrett story uh or the history of the band um and the song was able to make an impact i, I think that alludes to what i was saying earlier about how you know, I think the the re- one of the reasons for the success of this album is that you don't have to have that context. I think this, the the lyrics work in a, in a in a universal way where you can apply meaning to this song that fits you and your experiences. And when you hear uh, this song in particular, and and you maybe think about. Um, someone that you used to know or someone that meant a lot to you at one point in your life who for one reason or another that relationship faded away and that person it became more distant over the over the years you can or it, whether it's a, a a tragic situation like Sid or not like you can you can take those lyrics and you can find meaning for you in them i think the i mean really the only direct sort of line makes it about Sid is near the end when he's talking about come on you painter you piper you prisoner and shine like that's that's the clue for the Pink Floyd fans oh piper like the piper at the gates of dawn and then that connection could possibly be made there if it wasn't already made but um even even so you don't have to know the Sid Barrett story to know that this song has meaning and that you can you can find meaning in it um and this is uh, this is a story I'm sure you're aware of, and I just want to talk about it for for a moment. Like it's it's one of those kind of makes the hair on the on your arms stand up when you hear it. But it's uh, the story of when the band was was producing this song. They were I think in the mixing stage of of the song when um, Sid Barrett actually showed up to Abbey Road Studios and paid an unannounced visit, and he looked completely different there's there's a well circulated photo you can find it if you want of of sid at that meeting or at that visit where he looks completely different so much so that no one in the band knew who he was for a period of time until someone clued them in hey that's sid his head was shaved his eyebrows were shaved he had gained a bunch of weight um those are sort of ideas visuals that would crop up later in in the movie version of the wall but um, just so so amazingly, I don't know, ironic or coincidence. Does, those words don't seem to fit. Um, whenever I hear that story about how he happened to show up after years of not having contact with the band, just so happens on the day where they're working on the song that's about him. Uh, Roger Water says he was he was reduced to tears after finding out it was him and just having just being overcome by the experience of seeing him again they'd of course seen Sid since he left the band that members of the band had helped produce his solo albums um but I think that they were they were told or they made a decision to keep their their distance from him it upset Sid so much to to know that the band was continuing without him that they made the effort to not not upset him further by sort of intruding into his life more than necessary so um had you had you heard that story before oh yeah it's it's certainly well known and uh, among pink floyd fans yeah um and when i first began to do research 
on the early days of Pink Floyd when we first began this podcast, uh, I was able to uh, pour over a number of accounts concerning that now famous day at Abbey Road, and it must have been shocking. Well, they have pretty much said that they were shocked and just, uh, you know, talk about Roger being brought to tears about it, uh, and it must have been shocking. It's your, you find out that a good friend and compatriot, a guy who had the They'd ridden all over England and traveled in France and, you know, in vans and had performed on stage until he was no longer capable. There was the the matter of, well, the guy got sick and had to retire, for lack of a better way to put it, or certainly not be in the band anymore. And then you see a physical toll, which when you're a young man and you or a young woman for that matter, when you're young and you come across an old friend and that old friend has been radically changed and it just seems a lot older. And when you're young, someone getting old is a, you know, it's scary. It's uh, maybe not so much as, oh my God, that can happen to me, but more so, what happened to my friend? You know, he's, my friend is gone, my friend is there, uh, but that person is not the person they were. And you cannot but help, you can't help but imagine that there was a serious guilt about it. Whether that guilt was legitimate or not, but you cannot help but imagine that they would feel guilty in some way about how things played out. You know, here these guys are. Uh, They are, for lack of a better way to put it, arguably at the top of the musical world, having just created this hugely successful album. And they're back at it again, you know, doing what they do, living the dream, so to speak. And this ghost from the past comes in. You know, it's almost Shakespearean in that respect, and it underscores the tragedy of Sid Barrett because, you know, gee, it must have been bad for the remaining members of Pink Floyd, and I'm sure it was terrible. They have pretty much said it was a a shock and a terrible thing, but the real tragedy, of course, is Sid himself. And you're correct. uh, As far as my research is concerned, it was determined by Sid's family, whether it was his sister or a relative who's said, you know, it wasn't like, hey, stay away from Sid, you bastards. It was really more like, look, the guy is trying to get by and it would upset him if there was contact. He, he might welcome it, but it could upset him. And really for his own, uh, for his own sake, it's probably best to let, leave him alone. You know, just so he's not being disturbed by that and can move forward with his life and not have that, those, whatever he got out of, uh, you know, whatever came of his mental illness where he was in that state in the mid-1970s, it's better to just leave him be. It's for the best. And uh, they were... Well, who were they to say otherwise? 
But it is, I never understood why, and maybe it's never been explained, just how Sid Barrett showed up at that recording session. It's whether it was something he took upon himself, and I'm not trying to suggest there was some conspiracy or something stupid like that, but if there is a word where serendipity is where something you know, unforeseen kind of happens to the betterment of all involved. Uh, this isn't quite that, but somehow, for some reason, Sid Barrett showed up during the recording session, session coincidentally, and it threw the band for a loop. Who knows what was going on in Sid's head at the time, but, and who knows what effect overall it had on the song itself. It really had more of an effect, I guess, on the band, mem- band member psyches that day and maybe for days to come. But uh, just how that all happened, you know, the world can be a strange place. Think weird stuff like that happens, and there's no, it's really hard to put your finger on it how he came to show up there that day, but he did, and now it's become legend. You know, it's by the time they're they're making this album, it's 1975. It's been six or seven years, really, since Sid was a part of the group. He la- he was last really uh, officially with the band for just a, f- a couple of tracks on the Saucerful of Secrets album in '68. Um, in all this time since then, the band has tried numerous things. We've we've listened back to this this catalog now in the last few months we've been recording these and it, it's struck me at how many different ideas the band tried um and learned from and you and found their way um to this point and through all of that maybe and maybe a, a line here or or something you know sprinkled in there but very abstract about this this feeling of loss or this feeling that um you know sid was sid was no longer around um that it's taken this long for the band to address it so directly um and if you're looking at the the lyrics and you're reading along with roger you you realize like this is this is a major thing you don't write these kinds of words without a strong feeling pushing those words out of you um, or strong emotion pushing these words out of you. So clearly it's been there. It's been under the surface up until now. When I say like it, it makes the, you know, the hair stare, stand up on the, on your arm or on the back of your neck. When you hear that of all of the songs of all of the years of all of the days that the band has been in the recording session or in a mixing session and they just happen to, he just happens to walk in on the day that they're mixing this particular song. There's some, there's some cosmic thing there. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I don't read tarot cards or anything like that. I don't, I don't read the stars, but there's, there's something, I think it, it's, it's more than coincidence. There's some kind of cosmic force at play and I don't know what it is. I don't pretend to understand. I don't think I want to understand. I just, I, it's, it's, I don't think it's a, it's purely coincidental that, that this is when he, he makes his appearance. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, and but I'm going to disagree only in terms of 
I don't believe in cosmic coincidences. I believe in coincidences, certainly. Uh, I cannot wrap my head around the idea that there was some universal fate or destiny that that all came together that day that Sid Barrett showed up at Abbey Road's while they were mixing Shine On Your Crazy Diamond. Uh, it turned out that way, certainly, and I think it's just as likely Sid Barrett may have decided to go to the park or stay home or the band decided that or, you know, maybe something broke in the studio so they weren't going to do any mixing that day. Um, it's hard. I, I just am not a person who wraps my head around that sort of thing and goes, well, it was sort of a, you know, a, a, har a harmonic convergence or a maybe a discordant convergence that brought it together. That's never been something that I accepted or could you know nod my head to going yeah I guess so that's what it was I got no problem with that opinion and it's it's not like I'm gonna go man you're stupid for that kind of thinking that's not where I'm coming from what I am coming from is is that it came it happened just because it happened or, or maybe not because it happened but it happened and to leave it at that and anything to take away from that is how the band reacted and to the circumstance, not that their reactions in of themselves are really important per se, but it was something that happened within their life. Uh, what happened to Sid Barrett back in 1967-68 is something that happened in his life through many circumstances that may have been could have been predicted or may have been foreseen uh, I don't believe in fate or destiny or anything like that and, and as describing some universal truth to the human condition uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more it just I, I don't my brain doesn't accept that all that said the event unto, into, of itself, you know, Sid Barrett showing up at the recording uh, is a legendary part of, I don't know, rock and roll history. You know, it was, uh, this is something that, it certainly wasn't well reported at the time. I mean, I never heard about the story until years later. Yeah, when this, I started this to become, came out, I think, much later. Yeah, I mean, I mean, people knew that Sid Barrett had left the band or had to leave the band or uh, had eaten too much LSD or DMT or you know, what have you. Uh, that much was kind of loosely known, but it certainly was. It really wasn't until the days of MTV where you had quote unquote rock and roll reporting to a lesser extent Rolling Stone magazine, but MTV had a huge influence in that of getting these musical backstories into the public eye. And that's really when, on a side note here, the cult of Sid, the cult of Sid Barrett began to begin to rise. But all that to say that it was that story of Sid Barrett 
and certainly as Shine On You Crazy Diamond is about with no really, I mean, Shine On You Crazy Diamond is obviously about Sid Barrett and the Sid Barrett story and for good or for worse, all the good and all the band, all the bad, uh, that's part of that whole, if you want to call it an epic tragedy told well it's this is part of that epic tragedy that is told and it's woven into shine on you crazy diamond and to an extent it's woven into uh wish you were here that's i pretty much leave it at that yeah maybe he just showed up that day trying to figure out the whole when do you queue up the wizard of oz because he couldn't get it to <laughs> right, or maybe he had the. Maybe he showed up to go. You know, guys, <laughs> uh, Dark Side of the Moon. If you play it with Wizard of Oz, you know who knows. Uh, I mean, that we, would be, we, we found that w- we found the root of the uh, the story there. Right. Yeah. That that would be silly and you know kind of comical and all of that. But all of this is to say that Shine on Your Crazy Diamond itself is a portrait of a tragedy. It is a essay on sadness. Uh, and it's as eloquent as anything that Roger Waters has ever put to page. It's uh, it, it is as sad as it is. It's a beautiful song. You know all parts to it. it. They they work so well together with each other. And it's a if you have if you had no clue who Sid Barrett was, it is a beautiful piece of music. And if you have a clue about the history of Pink Floyd and Sid Barrett itself, it's a very eloquent piece of music. Yeah, it works both with and without context, I think. Um, and we didn't even talk about the music uh, component very much, but we'll have another opportunity because um, the track itself is actually cut up into two sections to bookend the album. So we'll have a chance to to catch up with Shine On You Crazy Diamond again um, in our next episode. But... Um, I think we should probably move on to the next track, which is uh, Welcome to the Machine. This is another track that got a great deal of radio play, uh, more so than uh, Wish You Were Here. Uh, This is, uh, I remember well this track coming on where you have the the machine part, the intro to the song itself, you know, the prelude where you have this mechanical uh, noise pastiche going on in the background or in the foreground, really, before you know the song actually musically begins. And this is this was a staple of album rock radio in the era. Uh, and before I get deep into what I think about "Welcome to the Machine," I'll just say that this is upon re-listening to it. This is a fabulous song, a very strong cut, and it. I really like how going back to uh, uh, going back to Shine on Your Crazy Diamond, how they decided to bookend the album itself with Shine on Your Crazy Diamond front and back. I really like the shift from the where they were at with Shine on Your Crazy Diamond shifting gears almost literally to welcome to the machine i thought this was a very good direction to take the flow of the flow of the album 
This is the song that um, I actually have a, a funny story about this one. Uh, back in my dumbass high school days, uh, a <laughs> fr- friend of mine uh, was throwing a Halloween party and said, Hey, would you mind putting a, a tape of some music together so we can uh, basically a, a oh mixtape? And uh, I was like, Yeah, sure. So I, you know, I spent the week combing through and making a mixtape. I was like, oh, welcome to the machine. That would be a good party song. Uh, Everybody likes this song. <laughs> Here, <laughs> spoiler alert, it is not a great party song. <laughs> I think a, lot, a couple of people like, what the hell is this one? Um, the party screeches to a halt. <laughs> well, it's getting late now. Yeah. Time, <laughs> roller rink party is getting to the end, boys. Um, right. You've been great. You've been great guests. Now get out. <laughs> uh, welcome to the machine. I think this is a track that, for me, uh, so far I have not particularly enjoyed many of the soundscapes that the band has put together up to this point. They've been interesting to listen to once, maybe twice, but on the whole, they've been uh, skippable um, tracks. Uh, in Dark Side of the Moon, we had On the Run, which was kind of a soundscape, but also had some musical component to it that made it feel more like a song. I think, what for, for me, Welcome to the Machine feels like the it's finally matured. Whatever this soundscape experiment the band has continued to try throughout their years, I think this is the point where they finally figured out what to do with with their soundscape building because it very much feels like something that could have been if it was on an earlier album it could have been one of those interesting once or twice but we're going to skip it every time we play it in the future soundscapes there's a song behind it i don't know what came first if it was a song that needed some sound or if it was some sound that needed a song but it's it's the culmination of of years of experimentation with um, playing with effects and recorded sounds and building a soundscape, but also making it something musical that works in the context in the context of a musical album. Yeah, it's the uh, the soundscape part of it. You know, the, the mechanical whirrings and you know clunks and clanks and you know, cycling in the background as if machines are, I don't know, stamping out tin cans or what have you. I always, uh, I always took it as like an elevator. Like we're on this big elevator. Yeah, going, going. I, I always took it as like cranes moving things. You know, mm. it's, it's very mechanical. And obviously this is suggested with, you know, the fact that it's welcome to the machine. From my young teenage standpoint at the time your dumbass teenage self (laughs) my dumbass teenage years well i wasn't so dumb as to put this on a party (laughs) tape but uh no offense but um it struck me as well it tickled that little bit of non-conformity that i'm sure is very common in young teenage boys it certainly was with me where you know the machine you're starting to understand that there's a power that there's a power that powers that be out there that uh, you know do you conform do you become part of the machine do you go off on you and strike your own path 
and uh, you know, are you an individual? You know, do you conform? Conform? Yeah, you know, that whole sort of thing. That is what is suggested here, and uh, in that respect, the song itself is very much a uh, a rallying cry or a, uh, against it in a very cynical fashion. You know, this is you know very much a you know this could have been on the wall, uh, which is this isn't the first song that I've ever talked about in the Pink Floyd catalog that I suggest could have been on in the wall, but it's a very you know, it is a screed uh, talking about you know, the machine, and the machine can mean a lot of things to different people. So that ambiguity, or it's a specific ambiguity that allows the listener to fill in that blank. You know, whether you're going to work at the insurance company or you know, going to go dig a ditch or to operate a tractor for that matter or work in a, in a factory. This is a kind of a cynical fist raised, you know, this is this is what you have lying ahead of you if you choose to go down this path. And so it struck that chord in that respect. Yeah, I've 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 struggled with this song over the years, um trying to trying to come to terms with what what the song is is trying to say beyond hey the, you know welcome to the world order um i don't know i don't know what uh i mean obviously it's not offering any kind of a solution it's not um it doesn't give the it, it seems more like against than for i don't know that that's too simplistic of a of an observation but um I guess what I'm getting at is, what does what does the listener take from it? Are they are they feeling bad about you know working their their nine to five? Are they are they is it a lament on dreams that you've given up? I guess it kind of goes that direction. Um, the machine itself, you know, capital M machine. Uh, I, I think it's it's part of the poetry of the album that it's it's opened for what you you interpret that to be. Um, you say this could be on the wall. I think this could be on animals. This sounds more like an animal song for me. Um, I think I think that's legitimate. That too. Yeah, I agree. it's it's biting. It's 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 biting. I think with maybe with less overall less to say. I mean, there's not a whole lot of lyrics to the track anyway, so they're not harping on anything for too long. So. Um, I think it's more of a broad stroke um, that what, that young man angst about, gosh, time to put on my tie, get in my car, and go work at the job every day feeling, um, which, you know, Pink Floyd, members of that band, do not have that uh, experience. So it's an observation, in my mind, it's an observation on others who have, who have made that choice. Um, or who've had that choice made for them, I guess, would be more appropriate. Well, one quote I came across from Waters was uh, specific to Welcome to the Machine. He says, it's about them and us, his words, them and us, and anyone who gets involved in the media process. So perhaps this is, at least from from Waters' perspective, it's the machine itself 
as represented directly with the Pink Floyd dealing with media, you know, interviews, of course. You know, they come to a town and the local media shows up to, to get an interview with the band and they're having to press the flesh and Waters as band leader at that time was, I'm sure, in the thick of all that and it gets tedious after a while. You know, the, the same clueless individual is asking the same clueless questions and that can get, you know, you, it's part of the process and he probably didn't like it because who would like doing the same, you know, answering the same dumb questions over and over and over uh, from well-meaning reporters, I'm sure, but that was part of his machine of, of earning a living, you know, and get, there was a fear of flying that was present within the band and, you know, getting in the airplane and, you know, walking through airports and, you know, going to the sound check and the instruments aren't working right or there's a power problem. You know, it's all part of the, you know, the 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 lows, not so much the highs of, of going to work because you got to work because you got to eat and you want to support your family. That's it in, very, in a very broad text or context. And uh, people can relate to that because almost everyone has to work in some fashion or another. And uh, they all have to knuckle down for their own machine. Even if they run their own operation, there is still a, in most cases, a regulatory framework that they have to, they have to pay attention to. And there's a, a presentation framework that they have to uh, go about to be, uh, to get work or to maintain work you know that's all the machine can mean anything but to all the listeners it can mean something very specific unto themselves and the song itself uh it's a cynical dirge against well not so much as against it that basically it's pointing to it and going this is it this is here and uh you know, well, you may as well, we're welcoming you. You may as well knuckle down and get to work because you really don't have an option one way or the other. Of course, they could have all retired by this point, at this point, but we're still young men and had that work ethic thing going on. It's what they did for a living. So the machine was, you know, it's almost saying that they're as much a part of the machine as the machine is a part of their whole, their experience, their life, their work. Uh, so it's very, very cynical and dark and almost accusatory, but it really doesn't get to the point of saying, you know, to hell with the machine, you know, go off and be your own person or anything so rebellious like that. It's really more of an acceptance of this is the dark side of living your life, you know, you want things to be good, well, you're going to be eating a lot of bad, or a lot of less uh, nice, you know, just, it, it, it's not all as sweet as it seems, and maybe that was part of the expression here with the success of Dark Side of the Moon, that that big success, as sweet as it was, 
and all the freedoms that it gave the band with having commercial plus critical success, you know, they could, you know, they still had to get to work and get after it, and they still had to deal with the idiots or, you know, the, you know, the the things that happen when you're trying to live your life. Yeah, you, you know, that that helps. That that's that you know makes that makes me give um, you know a little bit more appreciation to. To what the song is saying, I, I I would imagine that um, when you're in the position that the band is in at this point, when you're when you're this much of a success, um, you've got to suffer the fools a little bit more than you'd like to. Um, you've you've and I've I've seen several you know vintage interviews with not just Pink Floyd but with with many artists and. The more well traveled they are, the more sort of out of the woodworks people come and want something from you and uh, sure. want you know answers to questions that you you stop and think about like that's do you does anybody really want to know that um, what you're asking? Uh, but also you know you're going to the concert venue and there's there's everybody wants a piece of you while you're there. Um, and your art has become a product and you've got business meetings as much as you've got band meetings and you've got, um, itineraries to follow and you've got, uh, there's a structure to your life that you didn't expect, but is now essential to your, your career that you follow certain rules and that you adhere to certain things. And, um, you know, again, presented in a somewhat universal way uh, where anyone can apply that meaning to their own life and their own situations. Um, but yeah, Roger is, is, is probably, at, at this point, if he hasn't, it, I, I don't know if I would say fed up, but is getting fed up with um, what is expected of him daily as a, as a working musician. Um, and it's, it's, I think, more directly addressed in the next track that we'll talk about on our next episode. Um, but the, uh, you know, this particular version or iteration or, or way of expressing it, it does, it does have, um, there's, there's a bit of surrender to it, which I don't, I don't get a lot from Roger's lyrics. I'm not saying that it's a sort of a pathetic surrendering of, of everything that you believe in, but there is an acceptance of like, this is how it is. And you know, it's in the, it's in the title. Welcome to the machine. Like you're here, this is it. And I don't know if he's, if he's welcome, if he's the one that's welcoming or if he's playing a character who is welcoming Roger to the machine. That's, I think that's maybe where I get confused or if I, I, I get muddled or I, my interpretation changes uh, who is Roger singing as? Is Roger singing as himself? Is he singing to himself? That's that's the question I have, and I don't have an answer for it. But it it's something to think about when you think about this song. Yeah, I'm not even sure if Roger Waters would have a clear, concise answer as to what he's trying to say. And personally, I'm not really looking for one. You know, I look at this song as in, in several contexts, and the first context that comes to mind is where my head was at in 1975 when I first heard it and heard it on the radio when I, when I, when I really think about it. And uh, in that respect, 
it is sort of a dark, scary song, but it's very interesting. The, the, the lyrics are very clear to understand, and if you listen to what they're saying, it's kind of a, it, it's deaf. This is not pop rock by any stretch of the imagination. This is dark, heavy stuff that he's singing about, and it's you know kind of scary in that respect you'd think it'd be but, perfect for a halloween party but no yeah but no. <laughs> i tell you it is not <laughs> having fun at the halloween party we're gonna scare you with what life is about <laughs> the you scariest know, thing what, of all you know, the machine, <laughs> the, machine. Big, the big ambiguous machine and it's which has been beaten to death in years since and in that respect you could almost point to the song as being very influential in that way. Uh, although he was, I don't think Waters was the first person to to um, point to the, me- the me- mechanical society or society uh, that's been woven out of a very mechanical infrastructure. You know, I don't think he was the first person to ever do that. Well, the punks, you uh, know, gave Pink Floyd a lot of grief for being big and bloated but uh, that always confused me because yeah musically but lyrically they're you know they're singing about the same kind of stuff yeah exactly right and you know there's lots of contradictions and contradictions in punk rock unto itself and roger waters himself is a contradictory person uh depending on the subject and the nuances of the subject but in the context of 1975 this was a spooky song uh but it was a heavy song and i don't mean heavy in the sense that you know you had you know distorted guitar you know cranking to crank your speakers up or anything like that but it was a heavy dark foreboding and i compliments to rick wright for helping to color that but it's dark and foreboding uh and it's kind of a disquieting, unsettling piece of music, and uh, which itself I thought was a very interesting way to end the side of the record, to 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 start it off with this tragedy, uh, or maybe if you didn't know about Sid Barrett, this very melancholy, uh, sort of bluesy piece of music, bluesy in some sections. Uh, and then, but very melancholy, and then to shift gears from there to this dark, you know, almost Orwellian dystopic view of this is what your life is going to be. Uh, this is uh, this is the life of this character that is, you know, this the character in the song. You know, this is what. You know, welcome to the machine, and you're allowed to be that character. So in that respect, it's disquieting and unsettling, and uh, it only, you know, it, it's kind of a hindsight view here, but it only uh, primes you for what is to come on side B. Yeah, and if, I mean, it, it, not to say that the band intended on it, but you know, if you're looking for connections uh, or you're looking for a storyline. Um, you know, shine on into Welcome to the Machine, you know, is, you know, the machine as the music industry or as uh, celebrity as the kind of the thing that chewed up Sid and 
and spit them out the other end? Or is this, um, you know, the machine of, you know, the one guy who wouldn't play the rules? Look what happened to him. Cautionary tale. Why don't you come join our, uh, conform and join us, you know? It's, um, it's there if you want to look for it, I guess, if you want to play around with, with making those connections. I don't, I'm not saying it wasn't intentional, but um, it's just something fun you can do with the album if you're, if you're looking for a through line. Well, I thought of a, a, a notable, I just thought of it, uh, a quote uh, that Nick Mason had, and I'm, I'm not going to quote it exactly because I don't have it in front of me, but it was in an, inter- an interview uh, discussing Sid Barrett and his uh, effect upon the band, its inception and all of that. And when it came to Sid Barrett leaving the band uh, and, and his uh, mental struggles that he had, that... Uh, Part of it, what was going on, was the band itself. That was their dream. You know, they were going to try and make a go at being a musical act, a successful musical act, if they could get away with it. And uh, and who wouldn't? Because you know, look at the Beatles and look at the Stones and you know, and and these other famous acts of the era. You know, wouldn't you like to be a rock star? And Nick's comment was is he really doesn't believe uh, that well basically he thought that Sid Barrett decided that he didn't want to do that and he didn't go so far as to actually say Sid Barrett that is that guys I don't want to do this anymore he just stopped doing it he stopped playing that quote-unquote game he decided not to become a part of the quote-unquote machine and uh, and it was determined that he was crazy. Obviously, not specifically because he did not, you know, walk the walk. To he did not conform into the Pink Floyd so they could be uh, successful. But he was that diamond going back to shine on you, crazy diamond, who chose his own path. Maybe the path was chosen for him, and he had no control because. The guy had dealt was dealing with serious uh, mental illness, uh, but for good or for worse, that was he was a diamond, and that he never became a part of the machine. He started to come close, you know, making the rounds, top of the pops, doing the tours, showing up at the studios for the recording sessions. You know, talking about Piper and uh, you know, Uma Guma. Uh, but when all was said and done, Nick believes that you know, Sid really didn't want to do that. He wanted to go paint. He wanted to, he didn't want to become part of all of that. And I think the machine is clearly evocative of what is all of that. Whether you're going to work or in the case of Pink Floyd, going to do their work and all the BS that they had to deal with to make it a workable proposition. So at least that's how I see it. Well, yeah, it's, um, you know, all this discussion is just make me appreciate this album even more. There's so much, there's so much, there's only two songs on, on, on the side and we, we've been able to have a very in-depth discussion and interpretation and, um, I think that's a testament to just how strong of an album this is. Um, do you have more to say about Side A? 
No, I really don't, except to, I want to say again that I really like how they, Roger Waters and the band, decided to split uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond into a book ending it, uh, from the top of the album to the end of the album on side B, and the decision to, instead of, you know, they started off with this, this sad and very melancholy piece of music, and instead of flipping the script and going happy or more poppy uh, or with more of a pop sensibility, they took a left turn and made it even darker or went from melancholy to darkness and a a dark, cynical darkness. Dark, cynical darkness. Oh, boy. (laughs) It was a... they, they, They went deeper down the black hole uh, of whether it's despair or sad, you know, from sadness to despair, uh, there's this dark cynicism. It's kind of this. Maybe this is a stretch, but I can't help but think about it. In that, as funny as Stanley Kubrick's uh, Doctor Strangelove, uh, or how I stopped worrying and. Uh, Learn to Love the Bomb, I think that's what it's called. As dark as Dr. Strangelove is, uh, there is a hardcore cynicism that's going on there that is brilliant, and it's a a great turn there. And going from this melancholy, sad piece into uh, this darkness that everybody or virtually everybody can relate to I thought was a very wise choice a very good choice and uh, so if nothing else I think I'll close it out go right ahead and with that the needle goes up and we pause to flip the record over please look out for our next episode where we go through side B to wish you were here we'd love to hear your feedback so leave us a comment and rate the episode until next time this is Jerry and Al on the Vinyl Sideways podcast. We'll see you soon. Shine on.